Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, a quick reminder about the Other People app. This podcast has its own official app. The app is free. It's the Other People app. Go get the app for free wherever you get your apps. When you do that, the most recent 50 episodes of the podcast will be waiting for you free of charge. You get 50 episodes for free. And then if you want to get at the deep archives, if you want access to all of the episodes, you sign up for premium right there within the app. You can hear my conversations with dozens of writers, including George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Maggie Nelson, Kate Zambrino, Blake Butler, Dennis Cooper, David Shields, Roxanne Gay, Jonathan Lethem, Dana Spiata, Ben Marcus, Eric Larson, Jess Walter, Heidi Julevitz, Ben Fountain, Maria Semple. The list goes on the other people app go get it it's free sign up for premium support the podcast i would appreciate that oh my god you are not alone you have found other people you and i have a friend in common every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done i think it's really beautiful what a struggle you know it was incredible you know it's like your head exploded and now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is occasionally repetitive. This is two relative strangers talking to one another in a hot, filthy room. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting in Los Angeles. It is nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. David L. Eulen is my guest. He's a book critic for the Los Angeles Times and a recent recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship. He's also an accomplished author. His latest book is called Sidewalking, Coming to Terms with Los Angeles. It is due out from the University of California Press in October. Very happy to have had the chance to speak with David. You'll be hearing from him in just a moment. Hey, do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new headphones? Go to tweakedaudio.com, enter the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, and you get 33% off of any purchase over at tweakedaudio.com. Get some earbuds, get some headphones. So there's no baby yet, and the baby does not have a name. We've made no progress. That's what we do over here. We make no progress. We exist in a state of uh, paralysis. We stagnate. Is this real? Is this baby real? I'm trying to figure that out. It's very exciting. Can you hear it in my voice? I have a large knot in my upper middle back. That's a new one. I blame it on my unborn child. Any day now. I got a read tonight 
Uh, I'm doing a reading with uh, Bud Smith, Ben Laurie, Mira Gonzalez, and XTX. It will be over with by the time you hear this, but I've got to read tonight. I've got to figure out what to read over at a Stories Bookstore. So I've been perusing my uh, work in progress, my novel in progress, my quote-unquote novel, heavily autobiographical. This is the kind of work that I do. And uh, it occurs to me, as I've been flipping through this thing, that I have absolutely no imagination, none. I can, what I can do is just basically tell people what happened to the best of my recollection in my own life. So I've been thinking that maybe I should just, instead of reading something to people, I feel like I should just open up the floor to questions rather than me selecting a carefully curated slice of my own existence, which I will then present to people by reading it aloud. It almost seems more polite to be like, Hey guys, what do you want to know about me? What, what, what about my personal life? Do you want to know? I'll tell you. I think I'm going to read a, a section of the book involving sex. That tends to go over well. See, either be funny, read about sex, or be extremely sad. Don't be kind of sad, and don't be kind of funny. You either have to be very funny or very sad, or just read about sex. But the problem with reading about sex for me uh, goes back to what I just said. Most of my work, or all of my work, heavily autobiographical. So when I read about sex... Uh, that means I'm having sex, and that means people are going to have to imagine me having sex as they sit there listening to me read, which could be very uncomfortable. Not for me, but for the people listening. <laughs> I feel like I should pass out air sickness bags as a courtesy. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is David L. Ulin, L.A. Times book critic, Guggenheim fellow, and author of the forthcoming book, Sidewalking, coming to terms with Los Angeles, due out in October from the University of California Press. Had a great time uh, talking to David right here in this room. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. Here he is, folks. This is David L. Ulin. And his book, One More Time, is called Sidewalking. 
I mean, I think, first of all, we're wired to walk. I think that's part of, at least for me, it's part of how we kind of integrate ourselves with place. It's part of how we kind of have a conversation with the landscape we're in. It's a human scale, both in terms of sort of the speed of movement and I think in terms of just kind of the parameters of the movement, it's right? Very, I mean, it's very analog. It's very analog. Yeah. I mean, you're going to walk. I'm, you know, some. I walk a lot. Sometimes I'll walk three or four miles, but I'm not going to walk from, say, West Hollywood to downtown. So I kind of am sort of mapping out my my area, my neighborhood, in a way by walking. And I think it is part of the way we sort of situate ourselves in places, whether it's in urban places or um, suburban or rural or or whatever. With LA, I think it's a very um, Interesting and specific case because because it is a city that is so defined by the car and the popular imagination. I think it's becoming less and less practically defined by the car only out of necessity because we're at a state in many neighborhoods and at many times of kind of terminal gridlock. Um, rush right. hour seems to last forever at this point. And so um, the city itself, bike lanes, public transportation, light rail, etc., has really tried to, you know, has had to kind of try and figure out another way to get people to move around. Um, but I think the other part of it, too, is L.A., it's an interesting walking environment for me, at least, because it's very different from the urban walking environments I'm, I'm used to. The ones I, mean, I grew up in New York, I've lived in San Francisco and Boston and Philadelphia. Those are all walking environments of a particular kind in LA which is sort of this hybrid in many ways of the urban and the suburban um, is kind of interesting there's not the street life there's not a lot of overt street life although there is some street life or its own kind of street well, the life grove. come on man well the grove <laughs> is an interesting case because the grove is um, and we, you should, know. we should stay what the grove is for the uh, listener who might not be familiar it's a, it's, an, it's a mall but it's an outdoor mall it's a mall that's designed that's an outdoor mall that is designed to look like a sort of disnified city street, right. I think. You know, it has individualized storefronts, and there's a trolley, and there's sidewalks and curbs. Um, it's the kind of place uh, that I am, you know, hardwired to dislike, right. but I actually <laughs> kind of find it fascinating as a as a social incubator, yes. as, a, as a laboratory in a certain way. No, I'm glad to hear you say that, because it's one of those things that I, I like, reflexively want to hate, and yet I'm there a lot. It's great when you have kids. Yes. Because yes. you can let your kids loose without worrying too much about them. I guess the trolley could potentially... Yeah, but but they can learn about it. And when my kids were, you know, 10, 11, 12, it was the first place that we really would drop them off for a few hours with a friend and let them roam without us even being there, Um, you know, in the way that when I was growing up, we used to do in the city streets all the time, but that was uh, a different different levels of parental paranoia were in place. What's happened to that? I, my, I used to just leave. I'd come home when it was dark. Exactly. No, me too. No cell phone, no nothing. Um, you know, I think all this connectivity has not necessarily made us, you know, better uh, better at like, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily made us feel more secure. But are people, but are people getting more dangerous are the dangers more pronounced or are people just more paranoid you know? i think people are more paranoid i yeah. mean the dangers you know the dangers uh, it seems to me are no more pronounced yeah. right people the, it, there's got to be a kind of baseline percentage of psychopathy and in and and how it plays out in various ways i mean certainly children were being abducted and abused and 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 stuff in you know the 30s 40s 50s 60s it just wasn't being talked about in a certain way so i think it's the paranoia level and i think it's also in some way a weird backlash perhaps you know our generation you know maybe we felt like we weren't loved enough by our parents so we've bent over backwards to kind of overlove our children i'm actually really curious to see how our children raise their children i suspect it 
will be much more like the way our parents raised us. You think so? Yeah. So it'll recorrect itself. I hope, you know, I mean, I think, you know, but in, in that sense, I mean, though, going back to the Grove, I think, you know, for me as a paranoid parent, it was a very useful place to be able to kind of let my kids sort of ease into urban life, how to deal with strangers on a sidewalk, how to right, right. kind of have an autonomous experience in a certain way without me hovering over in like them. a disnified pocket with like a trolley and a fountain. And security, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and mall cops everywhere. Exactly. That's exactly what you want exactly. as a Exactly. Right. So you're from New York originally. Yes. Whereabouts? I grew up in on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Okay. So uh, these two cities, you know, it's 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 well chronicled about the uh, the different aesthetic, the different sensibility, uh, opposite coasts. You know, they sort of uh, function as the the polarities of American urban life, and you have experiences, uh, you know, extensively in both. Um, like, what has it? taught you like when you go back to new york after 24 years in los angeles 24 years yeah you go back home to new york and you feel how well i mean the analogy i often use is that uh new york is my native tongue i'm fluent in los angeles but i i speak new i mean new york is my native tongue so there's no translation right i go back to new york i I, and i should say also i spend um i'm not a ton of time in new york but i i'm back there you know, two, three, four times a year. So I go back on a fairly regular basis and have for the whole time that I've lived here. So in some ways, I feel like I've maintained a little bit of a relationship, an ongoing relationship with New York, although that really got dislocated after 9-11. But that's a whole other story. But in, in any event. Well, wait, wait, why? Because I felt that I wasn't that to not be present for such a cataclysmic event meant that I was my New York was gone. My New York was right. old, right? Something right. had happened that had fundamentally changed the way the city operated or thought of itself. And since I wasn't there to be part of it, I wasn't part of it any longer. It was definitely not my city. It was a city that I was very familiar with and intimate with, but it wasn't my city anymore. In the same way that I think, you know, in many ways, what became, made me sort of grow intimate with Los Angeles was, you know, the Northridge earthquake, the Rodney King riots, you know, those sort of huge social uproars where i think a city kind of personality of a city develops out of those those it's it's interesting you know i have friends uh like most people i have friends who were in new york city uh, for 9-11 and something happens collectively like to the collective consciousness or to to the way people um interact with one another and think of each other uh, I think there's something to that. I don't even know if you, if I can really put a name on it. I'm struggling, but like collective consciousness is what no. I think, I think of. you know it's interesting. There's a piece, an essay. Actually, I think it's part of a book, but that I think it began as an essay that Philip Lopate wrote, New York essayist, um, lives in Brooklyn, um, right after 9/11, where he said that when he and this actually tells us something interesting about Lopate that he actually had this thing. But when he got home um, that day after the towers fell, he hung. The New York City flag. He has a flagpole, I guess, at the front of his house. And he hung the New York City flag because he felt that it was a local tragedy. It was a city tragedy. It became a national tragedy or was framed as a national tragedy, but it was first and foremost a New York tragedy. And I have to say, I completely agree with him. I mean, not to say that there aren't broader applications of it, but essentially, I mean, I lived in that. I lived in Soho, so I lived sort of in that neighborhood for a long time. And my first impulse was they attacked the, they attacked the neighborhood. The, the neighborhood had been attacked. So I think we always are thinking in kind of localized ways in some sense. And if you're not actually there in the local environment when these events happen, it's very difficult to kind of be able to inhabit them emotionally, I think. Right. That's interesting. I've never thought about it that way. So um, growing up in New York... 
Upper East Side. Uh, what did your folks do? Did you come from a literary household? I came from a house with a lot of books. My father's a doctor. My mother uh, was a you know ran a fundraising business, but she had been an English teacher when I was a kid. I always say that you know he sort of taught me how to read because there was he didn't actually teach me how to read, but there were books <laughs> everywhere, and I always watched him reading. And and when I was a little kid, like four years old. Um, this will tell you a lot about my father, probably. I thought, you know, if you, to be an adult man, you did four things. You read, shaved, smoked, and drove. So he was a smoking doctor. He was a smoking doctor. What kind of doctor was he? Orthopedist. Okay. <laughs> so, but, you know, and, I, and eventually I grew up and I did all of those things. <laughs> but, um, so he except was, you were not an orthopedist. Except I was not an orthopedist. Yeah. Um, but so there was that So there was that sense of, you know, so that, that reading was always in the house. And my mother, uh, for better or worse, and I've gone back and forth on this, was a kind of... Um, obsessive grammarian so she would always edit my papers when i was a kid like you know starting third fourth grade would maybe even yeah, probably third grade third fourth grade would sort of redline my compositions before i turned them in and correct all the grammar and so in a way although i like your, I can, I like your mother already yeah i learned i mean i learned how to construct sentences and paragraphs from that from that exercise um and so in that sense i mean it, you know it was a writerly or readerly household but not really a literary household in the sense that it wasn't an artistic household right and so uh Growing up, you have siblings. I have a younger brother. Younger brother. Okay. So, what what, what was it like for you growing up in New York? I, I you know I'm always fascinated with people who have that upbringing because I had the suburban Midwestern thing. It was great. I mean, you know, it, it it's hard to say. I don't. I obviously chose not to raise my kids there, and I think it would be a very difficult place to raise kids. But I grew up. I was born in '61, so I grew up really. You know, my formative years, let's say, were early 1970s. New York was just you know it was the height of the fiscal crisis if you've you know i mean the movies that i bond with right dog day afternoon serpico death wish right it was that new york right heightened though they gritty. may be it was gritty it was brutal it was you know it was like the urban apocalypse it was great <laughs> um it completely cha- you know i sort of established the way i think like whatever my aesthetic is for cities and what i want from them um and it was a free-for-all. I mean, my parents had grown up in the city, so they felt very comfortable in the city. They, you know, we were, my brother and I were both riding public transportation by ourselves at the age of eight, nine, um, roaming the city with our friends, uh, very early age, you know, again, pre-cell phone era. There was no way to check in with them. I would just disappear for the day and then come home for dinner. That's what I'm, I mean, you know, it's like if today you have a kid with a cell phone, you can, tra- you can practically track them via GPS, and yet it's considered uh, more dangerous <laughs> well and still you don't know what they're doing you know as an yeah. example my oldest kid who's 20 is living with us for the summer so he went out last night and spent the night at a friend's house and you know i mean you know i know i basically know where he is but i have no idea where he is i don't know what he's doing i'm not keeping track of him i mean if i want to call him i can call him but he's doing whatever he's doing anyway regardless of whether he's i can 20 check, check him. he's 20 years old right as i would have been at 20 in the same way so i think in some ways that cell phone thing just gives us an illusion that we have some sense of what's going on when in fact it's it's really the same as it ever was, just with more technology. Right. <laughs> He's like, hey, Dad, I'm at the library. <laughs> right, exactly. Is that like a daytime <laughs> rave? <laughs> hiding, <laughs> hiding in the bathroom, making a call. Right. So you've got all that stuff. You know, but it was a great, in terms of that freedom and in terms of a real sense of kind of autonomy, you know, it was, it, and even for a kid like me who desperately wanted to be an adult, um, it was great because I could just roam everywhere. I had access to everything. I could go in and out, you know, whatever I wanted to do. Um, 
and because I knew, you know, I was used to or sort of accustomed early to kind of buses and subways, I was able to get around the city pretty readily. And so, you know, if I wanted to go to the village, I could go to the village. Um, if I wanted to go to Midtown, I could go to Midtown. If I went wherever, you know, whatever I wanted to do. Um, and so there was something great about that, both in terms of kind of freedom and also I think in terms of imaginative freedom. I mean, I think there's something really interesting about wandering around cities and kind of watching people and looking in windows and stuff like that. Just walking, street-level experience. Exactly. I, I say this about even being on a bicycle versus taking taxis around or subways where you're mm-hmm. underground. Um, you know, but just slowing down a little bit, taking streets that you wouldn't normally take, taking you know the side uh, the side roads or whatever you want to call it, uh, you wind up experiencing a place in a completely different way, and uh, it gets addictive. Like everywhere I go, if I travel somewhere, one of the first things I do is try to find a bicycle for precisely that reason. Or if it's a, you know if it's a good walking environment, obviously I'll walk too, but. Yeah, I mean, I think it's how, for me, it's how you get to know the city. And so I feel like New York really got into my blood. I think also, you know, I was very close with my mother's father when I was growing up. He had he had come um, as an eight-year-old from Russia to Brooklyn. And so I grew up on all of his stories. You was know, he in New York, too? He was in New York also. I mean, everyone in the family was in New York. So I grew up on all of his stories of sort of, you know, Brooklyn in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, um, which were very romantic and nostalgic in a certain way, especially in the 1970s. But gave me that a kind of extra generational pulse. So I really felt like, you know, I would feel deeply, deeply rooted to New York as a kind of, uh, as a kind of place. Yeah. And yet at the same time, I felt also, I mean, one of the reasons, there are a number of reasons we moved out, but one of them was that I felt that I was at risk of becoming one of those people who just never was going to leave the island of Manhattan well, ever. I, you know. Know. I have a friend who grew up there and he had friends. He used to tell me this like half joking who they went to Florida to see their grandparents and then they were on the island of Manhattan and that was it. Right, and I'll tell you, my, my you know my father will tell this story about himself, um, but he basically says, you know, he goes the only time he ever leaves the island of Manhattan is to go to Queens, where the airport is. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and then he'll travel where? where travel he wherever. He'll come okay. out here. He'll go to Europe. He'll do. But you know, in ter- you know, in terms of sort of, got, you know, maybe he, I mean, he'll go to Connecticut or Boston or the. But but um, you know, in terms of sort of going to another borough of the city, the only reason to go to another borough of the city from my father's point of view, is to leave the city. <laughs> <laughs> so what got you out? So you're, you're, you're there through high school, and then you go off to college? I went there. Through, I was there through high school. I, went to, I spent a year um, after high school driving with my uh, – doing my – my best friend and I did our Kerouac year. So we, oh, you did? Yeah, we took a year off, and we drove first to South Texas, where we worked for a couple of months uh, to, ma- to raise money. And doing then what? Worked in a uranium mine. Good for you. Yeah. We don't need I glow at night. So, uh, I mean, was it dangerous? You know, it's hard to say. Yes, I'm sure it was dangerous. (laughs) But no more dangerous than other things you could get into at age 18. No more dangerous than other. And, you know, and we worked there for two months. So, you know, in the total scheme of things, given all of the stuff that we're exposed to over the course of our lives, you know, a little bit. They didn't didn't have, actually, only at the very end, the last couple weeks we worked there, did they have those little... um, Whatever they are, the uh, you know they'd clip on those little um, Geiger things, and then at the beginning and end of every day they'd check your radiation levels. But for the first six eight weeks we were there, all bets were off. Okay, so what, did you plan this, or is this something you stumbled into? Were you like, you know what, let's leave New York, let's drive to South Texas and work in a uranium mine? It's interesting, you know. I mean, this is actually uh, the, the next book I write is going to, I think, going to deal with this material. But um, 
we were we were privileged kids. I mean, you know, we were privileged kids. We were um, you know private school kids, upper middle class, and we really wanted to have this experience. We wanted to kind of like you know see what life was like. And our parents, um, to their credit, actually, I think you know when we took the when we decided to take the year off, they both sets of parents said to us, you know, this is a great idea. We're totally behind this, but if you guys want to have adult experience, you got to pay for it. You know, we're you know we'll be happy to help you out when you if you go back to college but so my father we had this old beater car my father actually bought us four brand new tires for the car that was his contribution to the year um we had both you know worked and saved up money so we had enough money to get to texas our plan was always to get to texas and make money because it was 19 late 1979 so height of the energy boom in in south texas where even minimum wage was a buck i think a buck 50 over what minimum wage was in the east coast on the northeast and we had had no particular skills but we'd you know we'd done construction and demolition work and stuff like that so we figured we'd you know get unskilled labor work and we made like 450 an hour but everything was cheap so we got down there we didn't know exactly what we were going to do but uh my friend's father knew somebody who worked for an energy company and they had a uranium mine in this little town called three rivers which is about 100 miles north of the mexican border and so nice and warm down there. Huh? Well, it was December, January, February. Oh, oh, so it was okay, actually okay. kind of that was the, that was a that was a nice thing. So anyway, so we you know we signed on there, and and it was a, so they were actually building the processing plant while they were also mining the uranium. They were using a kind of drill technology for mining the uranium that was not dissimilar to like an oil bit. So my friend was working out in the fields, running the bits down, and I was working um, constructing the plant, basically cutting PVC pipe, digging ditches, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, then it was, I mean, it and was. You made your money. We made a bunch of money because we spent no, I and mean, we were paying. We were splitting, a, you know, one hundred and twenty-five bucks a month in rent that we were splitting. Right. There was nothing to do. Right. I mean, really nothing to do. Um, Plus, you had to be so tired. You just we were tired, yeah. and you know, we had a little TV. We watched a lot of football. Um, you know, we drove around a lot. We it was a complete culture shock in all sorts of ways. So we saved a bunch of money, and then we went to San Francisco. So that was sort of an early. And then we spent six months there before we came back for college. So that was sort of the early California. California bug, and, um, and that was. And you say those were your Kerouac years. So you were you got the Kerouac bug. You read Jack Kerouac, and I read him. I started reading him in ninth grade, tenth grade. Um, I was always, I was always, I, I wanted to be a writer from the very beginning, and I was always drawn. Um, I hesitate to, I mean, Kerouac's complicated. I hesitate to call him an outsider, but I thought of him as an outsider at that point. So I was always drawn to sort of outsider lit and bohemian literature and the idea of sort of, you know, pushing back against sort of the middle class expectations of my upbringing. Kerouac seemed to really represent that for me in a lot of ways. Still does to some, in different ways, in the sense that I think he really wrestled with, you know, his bohemian tendencies on the one hand and his middle class sensibility on the other hand. Well, he you know? came, but he, and he has like, and he's an odd mix because, like, later in his life, at least politically, he he seemed to be at odds with a lot of what I think uh, his fans might perceive. He was a him. rabid right wing. I mean, I shouldn't say rabid right wing, given who what we now define as the rabid right wing. But from his, you know, in his era, he was a right wing. He was a conservative. You know, he supported the war in Vietnam. He lived with his mother. For, right. You know, for like. 
like 10 years, the last 10 years of his life, which yeah. is, you know, again, if I, you know, I, I would have never been able to process that at like 15 or 16. Right. At this point, to me, that's what makes him so fascinating still. But I really wanted, like, there was something about the freedom of his prose um, and the way he described the road and the romanticizing of this kind of vast American landscape that really, really, still does really appeal to me, but really appealed to me at that point. Well, it, wants, it makes you want to get out and have your own adventure. It makes you want to get out and have your own adventure. And we got, you know, we had this cheap car and it was late seventies. Gas was cheap and we could, we could pretty much do whatever we want. So we went and we did this thing we ended up in San Francisco and that really kind of, and then I, we went back East to go to college and I spent my entire college experience kind of pining for not only that, but I spent, you know, part, I was always pining for California and it took about a decade before I could get back. Okay. So you go back to, where did you go to school? Uh, University of Pennsylvania. Okay. So you go to Penn, you study liter- English literature, English literature. Okay. And then, uh, what did you do in the decade in between, you know, I guess like doing college, getting out of college and then eventually coming West. I moved back to New York. Um, I had, uh, met my wife, not my wife then, but my girlfriend then at college. So we, she was, we were together in college. Um, and I sort of, and I thought I was going to leave and move back out to California, but then I decided that I was more committed to that relationship than I had imagined. So I stayed in New York. We lived together in New York for a couple of years and we got married and stayed in New York for a couple more years. So, and then, uh, and at that point, I was I was I worked in a bookstore for a while. I was just starting to get published. I was writing a, an interminable and terrible novel that I ultimately abandoned. <laughs> Everyone's got one. <laughs> at, Every, at, at least, least one. one. <laughs> I have more than one, <laughs> but this was that one. Um, and around the same time, I mean, you know, we were sort of rent was going up. Um, Work was drying up in New York, and we were sort of thinking about what we were going to do. And we had a lot of friends in L.A. I really still wanted to get to San Francisco, but I thought it will be easier to get to San Francisco from Los Angeles than right. from New York. Yeah. Um, and we had spent a lot of time in Los Angeles over the course of those four or five years visiting friends, and we liked it. So we decided my wife was acting at the time also that was, and things were drying up in New York too. So, and people we knew in LA were getting work. So we decided to move out here in 91, which we did. And, and I should also say I was writing a friend. One of my close friends was an editor at an alt weekly here called the LA reader. Um, so I was already writing, I mean, you know, for like 25 bucks a piece, but I was already writing. I had a sort of place to write, um, so it seemed like a, a logical place to go. We were, you know, 29 years old. We figured we'd come for a couple of years, see what was what, and then probably end up moving back. But who knew? And then one thing led to another, and, you know, here we are. Look, yeah. Now you're in my garage. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's all happening. Oh, my God. It is. It's all finally. It's all happening. <laughs> so you, you got here in what year? 90? 91. 91. Okay. So... And I'm gonna, this is kind of a parallel question because I'm, I'm curious about your feelings on New York as well. But uh, we'll start with Los Angeles. How has Los Angeles changed uh, since 91? It's a totally different city. It in, is. In a number of ways. Um, I think that it is more aware of itself as a city in a certain way and as a kind of 
I don't want to call it a coherent city because I don't think it is a coherent city, but as a more coherent, there's a more coherent sense of Los Angeles as a kind of identity. When I first moved here, um, it felt to me like um, there's a uh, writer I know, a uh, playwright named Luis Alfaro, a playwright and performance artist who described it to me once as 72 little border towns, which is also kind of a riff on the Dorothy Parker line, 72 suburbs in search of the city. city. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it felt like, I mean, that is the stereotype, but it did feel like that. It felt very isolated. It felt very segregated. It felt, um, you know, nobody left their community. Um, and that was really exaggerated by, let's say, I think pr- really by the Rodney King riots, which took place about nine or ten months after I moved here. Welcome to Los Angeles. Welcome to Los Angeles. And I thought that, you know, the initial hope was maybe this will break down some of those barriers between communities. But in the short term, anyway, it seemed to really erect those barriers. I also think that when I first got here, L.A. or Southern California felt to me very much in a way like a police state. Um, There were all these, and still are, these overlapping jurisdictions. So you'd have, you know, county sheriffs and L.A. cops and, you know, Santa Monica cops and Culver City cops. But the... even though the forces were smaller, it felt like there were police everywhere. And, and the helicopters. And hel- helicopters, uh, which was a real adjustment. And they also felt um, adversarial. You know, you would stop. I remember stopping and asking a police officer for directions early, like in the first six or so months that I lived here. And him being very aggressive in a certain way. That was, you know, strange to me because I was like, I'm just asking you how to get somewhere. You know, right. that is part of your job after all. <laughs> Presumably, you know, the city. Serve and protect. Exactly. And I think really, I mean, I think it is, you know, it is true that the Rodney King riots, the aftermath of Rodney King riots, the shift in the way that policing was done. Where, where were you living when the riots happened? I was living right around the corner from uh, from where we are right now. Okay. And did, was, say where we are. I'm not going to say where we yeah, are. Yeah, but I mean, but, did you, did you, uh, was there fear? Like they, that your neighborhood was going to experience violence, or did it feel still peripheral? It was a little bit of both. I mean, there was not much violence in the neighborhood. It was a lot of cognitive dissonance. The first day, actually the second day, things quieted down, and then they amped up again the second day. And so I remember going outside the afternoon of the second day, and there was this woman who lived next door to me who was, you know, sunbathing in a bikini on her front lawn. Um, those were the days. Those were the days. <laughs> and while meanwhile, there were sirens everywhere and smoke in the air. And it was this really interesting and kind of disturbing bit of cognitive, yeah. um, cognitive dissonance in a way. But the other, you know, but we, you know, there were some... There was some stuff in the neighborhood, but not that much. Sammy's camera burned. There was a mini mall on Pico. Wait, was Sammy's camera on? No, it moved. That's the new location. Okay. But it used to be on Beverly, and it, the original location burned. There was a mini mall on the corner of La Cienega and Pico that's still there that burned. Oh, wow. Um, that's not too far. I not mean, too far. I mean, like, we went to my friend. Uh, my friend and I went out after curfew and wandered over to La Cienega and watched the National Guard personnel carriers coming down La Cienega, which is, uh, you know, I mean, I, it, it's a just <laughs> once in everyone's lifetime, you should watch military trucks rolling down your local streets. Yeah. It's really a horrifying experience. Oh, my God. So there was all that, but it didn't feel threatening in the sense. I, mean, I guess the only way it felt threatening was that there was a sense that if something did happen, you were on your own because the police were completely overmatched by what was going on. Um, in a way, that felt a little bit like 1970s New York. So You're that, like was, right that was okay, right? <laughs> so, hey, it's, it really is a city. But I think all of those things really have changed. I think if you think about you know the the Los Angeles that Mike Davis 
delineates in City of Courts, which was published in 1990. Fortress LA, gated communities, um, sort of physical division, people pulling out of the community. Uh, also a kind of constantly expanding city, a city that was expanding out to um, the Antelope Valley at that point. You know, that there was the idea that it would just keep on growing and growing. All of that has kind of changed, and the city has kind of folded back in on itself. It can't sustain itself on that level. Um, there's a lot more, I think, a kind of pride or a sense of Los Angeles identity in a certain way. I think in many ways that does have to do with public transportation. It has to do with a kind of further emphasis on neighborhoods as opposed to sprawl. Um, sprawl is certainly still here, but I think we're thinking in terms of neighborhoods and community in, in different ways now. And so in all of those ways, I think the city has changed and changed very much for the better. I See, and I like it here. I do, too. Okay. I do, and too. I, I feel a sense of like, I mean, I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere, so I guess this is my home. That's sort of how I feel, too. I mean, I still have my issues with it, but I have my issues with everything. So, yeah. um, but I like it. I feel comfortable here, and I and I'm fascinated by it, and I am excited right. by it at this at this moment. Like the last five, ten years, it's become a really exciting city in all sorts of ways. Well, the art scene, the yeah. food scene, um, you, you know, there's just a lot of there's anything creative, and it's like what makes you, I think Los Angeles like the central factor for me uh, is that it's a city uh, in which the creative industries are principal. Yes. Where else can you say that? I mean, I know that like New York has like its media, but it's also finance. I, I feel like Los Angeles is, I mean, it's entertainment. It's entertainment. I mean, I wish and that, weapons, <laughs> entertainment and weapons, which you know that, that, that's a fair trade off. I think. I mean, I do, I do wish that there was more of a publishing infrastructure yes. in some way, which the, it, you know has always been a little bit sort of tenuous in some in some sense. It's not it, it you know that's changing to some extent. There are some excellent publishers and excellent publications here, but the critical mass of it, I think, is I, I wish there was more. Well, it, but it is it is moving away from New York. It's decentralizing itself. Yes, and you think that's for the better? I do. I mean, I, I think it's a little bit of both. It's decentralizing, but it's also centralizing in a sense. And I think in that way, I mean, then we come back to this question of kind of public transportation and um, how we move through the city, how we engage with the city. I feel like, you know, in the in the book, I talk about um, the 2006 immigration rallies um, where, you know, estimates are as many as 2 million people were in the streets of downtown. Um, and I think in some way that was a transformative event because it reminded us that the streets are public space. You know, the old model, and I, it's a sort of mid-century model of Los Angeles, which is the sort of freeway suburban house model of Los Angeles, the ster- that stereotype of Los Angeles. The, the streets are, we never, you know, the, 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 in some way the ideal is to never interact with the streets. You know, you move from, you maybe don't even have to go outside. You leave your house, you go into your attached garage, you get into your temperature-controlled car, right. you drive through the streets to the parking structure at your job, yeah. you know, you park there, you take the elevator to your office. Finish your work. You go there. If you want to go out for the evening, you park. You know, drive to a shopping mall, park in the lot, take the escalator up, go have dinner, go to the movies. Same thing. So you're never actually physically engaged in the street. And so I think that that shift to a kind of more collective involvement with the street, whether it be through pedestrianism, bicycles, public transportation, um, all of those things, has been key, not just as a necessity for dealing with population and gridlock, but also as a way of kind of asserting community by making us have to fundamentally reckon with the fact that we're part of this together. Well, I just, you know, this is what I dream of with Los Angeles is some sort of like, like, could they just shut down Wilshire to car traffic and just have it be a, a bicycle street? It'd be amazing. Or just build some sort, you know, like I think of the High Line in New York. Mm-hmm. Like if there was some way to, to uh, you know, simulate that where you have like a elevated 
pedestrian and bicycle thing or i've I've seen plans for um building parks on top of the freeways well that's yeah that's one idea there was actually about a hundred years or so ago there was a an elevated bike path um in pasadena but i've i've seen photographs of it like a a sort of elevated wooden track that people rode their bikes on i i I don't know where i i want to say it went to downtown but i'm not sure it extended that far i just wish there was like a way to get around the city on a bicycle or on foot that was unimpeded Mm -hmm. and if it had some sort of green green attached to it that would be great tree cover would be even better it would be great you know I, i would i would take a fully exposed you know path <laughs> oh always no i will always walk or take the i mean i actually love the train so i will walk or take the train any if there's an opportunity for me to get somewhere without getting in a car i will take it okay so let, let's do new york now okay uh because i've heard the common refrain i hear about new york is that it's like one big shopping mall now all the artists have been pushed out into brooklyn or queens <laughs> well brooklyn there's no i think brooklyn's way too expensive for artists now. yeah now right where are they going now what's it meant what's it called uh, long island city right i think the bronx the bronx will never be gentrified that is my um that's where i would go if i was you know i, I mean i sort of agree with that i think new york has jumped the shark to use a tv term in a lot of ways and manhattan in particular and 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 those areas of brooklyn too I mean, I love it. I love the way it looks. I love. I feel about it in some ways. I mean, I feel more personally attached to it, but although I have affection for San Francisco too. And similarly to San Francisco, I love it as a physical landscape. I love the way it looks. I love walking around in it. I have you know layers and layers of, of memories and associations, um, as well as a lot of friends. I always have a good time when I'm in those cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ener- um, a lot of energy. A lot of energy. But I also feel like. Um, it had both cities in, in many ways really have kind of fallen prey to um, to the you know the downside well whatever the, one cult of the of many money. Down, cult of money the sort of the yeah the the, the, the sort of ups, whatever the fascism of wealth yeah and I think that that has really damaged the social fabric of those cities it does I mean when when ordinary people can't live in a city <laughs> yeah like who who's living there I, I always ask myself that when I'm walking around Manhattan I know there are people who are in rent control apartments I know there are some people who and I think about the same thing about Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Like, who's affording all of these houses? I agree. And if you don't have, I mean, it's it's a problem here. It's a problem in Los Angeles as well. It's a problem in all of these cities. But if you can't have, I mean, let's just say, if you're if you're if the people who work for the city can't live in the city, right? That's cops, firemen, uh, sanitation workers, restaurant restaurants, yeah. you know, doctors in public hospitals, it's, you know, clinic workers, etc. If those people can't live in the city, then you lose some kind of f- essential connection to the city, um, and that's a real problem. I mean, that's a real that's beyond a philosophical problem. That's a real practical problem. I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know how you like. How do you go back? Right. How do you retrofit a city with? A- Bigger affordable housing, a big earthquake. <laughs> Knock on wood. <laughs> um, so, let's talk about uh, book criticism. Your work at the Los Angeles Times. You arrive here at age twenty-nine. You're working for what was it called, Los Angeles City Reader? The Los Angeles Reader. The Los Angeles a, Reader. Yeah, a small alt weekly. Okay, so you go from that to being the book critic for the LA Times. How, how does that happen? Um, it's serendipitous in a certain way. I was, a, I mean, the great thing, I was a freelancer. I was, uh, you know, I, I came out as a freelancer. The reader was a good gig 
but it was a freelance gig. It was a steady gig, but it was a freelance gig, um, which I liked. I think I'm kind of wired that way. Um, and I could do a lot of things there. In many ways, that was my graduate education. I, you know, I was able to write, I wrote about books. I was the book editor of, uh, after a while I became the book editor of the reader, but I also wrote, you know, essays. I wrote op-ed pieces. I did some reporting. I wrote some cover stories. Um, I really got a kind of grounding in, what you could do as in you know what you could do as a journalist, and I sort of fell in love with journalism. To my surprise, I had not you know intended to be a journalist, but the immediacy of it, the kind of um, adrenaline rush of it, the the conversational notion of it, and the fact that it was disposable that you know we were this is I was working for the reader before in pre internet. Um, so, you know, you'd write something, it would go out on the stands, and then would, a week later it would be gone. Sometimes the best thing you ever wrote, sometimes the worst. The worst thing I ever published in my life, which actually, interestingly enough, was a piece about Kerouac. Um, Tell me you did it in the beatnik style. I did not do it. In, I don't <laughs> believe in the, what is the fallacy of imitative form. Um, okay. I... I was an idiot. I'll just say that. So my f- wife was due with our first child on Halloween. And so I took on all of this work leading up to Halloween because I wanted to stockpile some money so I could spend a couple of months getting to know the kid. Um, it never occurred to me that a due date was just an estimate. Yeah. <laughs> so he was born six days early. And I was writing this cover story about sort of the cult of Kerouac for the reader. And I was having a lot of trouble wrapping my mind around it. In the best of circumstances, I would have had a lot of trouble wrapping my mind around it. But because um, my son, our son was born six days early, uh, and there was also uh, – I was an editor, so I knew what the deadlines were. So they had basically laid out – they had designed the cover. They had laid out the pages with dummy copy. So it was either I had to deliver something or they were going to have to just run an empty – you know, three empty pages of the paper – um, I had to write it in 36, the first 36 hours that my son was home oh from the hospital. God. And I've been through that. I tell you, that, I, is no, not, I mean, that is not an environment in which anybody could properly You can't write. even function. Yeah. So, you know, in a way, it's a miracle that word, that that volume of words actually made it onto the pages and that they did form sentences. It's a terrible, terrible piece of writing, um, which thankfully does not exist in electronic form. Yes. But that was a real learning experience for me in the sense of, you know, what what does it mean to fail in public? What does it mean to fail in public about something that matters how, to how you? Do you? How did you know that it failed? Did people tell you or did it just no, your feeling? No, people were – I just know. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. if your work isn't good. It was not good work. Um, I mean, there was a reason for it, but nonetheless, it was not good That's work. That's a pretty good excuse. Uh, it, you know, I'll take it. But yeah. nonetheless, so that was a huge learning experience. And so I was freelancing. I did a lot of freelancing for the Times, writing book features, doing book reviews. The reader fell apart um, and was sold and sort of dismembered in 1996. I freelanced for about eight or nine years. I started doing my own books. And then um, 2005, I – the 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 then book editor of the Times announced that he was going to resign. I th- had just finished, or was, I mean, a year before, but had finished a kind of really brain bending book project and I wasn't ready to start another book project but I was looking for something to do and I thought you know I'll apply for this job there's no way they'll give it to me because I have no daily newspaper experience but why not let's see what happens um and then they did so I got it I think in some ways I, I have no idea why partly for me I never thought I would get it so I didn't um 
So you were loose in the interview? I was loose in the interview. They asked me what I, what I thought, and I told them. You know, right. I was at, at one point, they said, you know, what if we offered you another job? And I said, I'm not really looking for a job. I like my writing life. But if this job were available, it's really interesting to me, and I would definitely be curious about that. But it's more a matter of an opportunity as opposed to a job. You know, I have no idea how these things work. So that, But that was how that process went. And so much to my surprise, they offered me the job and it was as the book editor. So I took the job editing the section. And then I edited the section for five years. Um, I've always gone kind of back and forth between writing and editing. I'm primarily a writer, but I love editing. But in every editing job I've had at a certain point, I hit a wall where I want to be focusing on my own writing more than on other people's writing. And thankfully, when I hit that wall at the paper, I was always a writing editor also. So I, that was part of what I did. They were very open to the idea of me sliding over and, and becoming book critic. So I did, I made that jump, and that was that's the short version of the story. Okay, so from book editor to book critic, book editor to book critic. Okay, and so and but then at, at the same time publishing your own work. Yes, which not all book critics do. Right, book. I mean, they publish obviously their criticism, right? But they don't then put themselves out there as authors and kind of experience the other side of the coin. Yeah, I mean, I've you know I have always done both, and I've always seen them as related and essential to each other in many ways. I think that the criticism allows me to, or requires me to really frame an aesthetic, you know, to really think about, not just about the individual books that are being reviewed, but also to really think about what's important to me in terms of writing and, and literature and how it operates and how it moves me and what I'm looking for, both as a reader and also in some way as a writer. Um, and so I think that's useful. I think it also is useful, has been very useful for me in terms of thinking about writing as a public act in the sense that in my books and in my criticism, I am trying to engage with a readership or with a reader, let's say, um, whoever that reader is. I'm trying to have, I'm trying to participate in a conversation, and the idea of writing on a regular basis for the newspaper about a subject, which is by its nature conversational has really kind of made me aware of that in a very concrete front and center kind of way which I've been able to bring to my own writing hopefully as well so that's been really useful I think the other the and and I think the the writing has informed the criticism in the sense that I really think about the critical pieces as discrete little essays in a certain sense I mean they they do have uh there's a requirement in terms of saying you know basically is this book worth your while um but I'm also aware that in many cases, as with me, often I will read book reviews of books that I don't go on to read. There's just not enough time or right. I'm not that interested. I'm interested enough to read the review. And so I'm aware of trying to craft a, a piece that stands on its own so that if a reader, if that is that reader's only experience of this book or this set of ideas, then the goal is for it to be sort of fulfilling on its own terms. So the two of them kind of inform each other. And they have. I mean, as I said, I've been re writing reviews since for now. What, about 27 years I've been writing trying to write books for about 32 33 so they kind of have evolved together and I find the back and the, the, the conversation between them in some way to me at least benefits both and, and who are some of your uh, heroes like are there people are there writers that you look to who have done both who performed in, in both roles that you kind of like hold up as uh, examples that you try to follow? Um, that's an excellent question. I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know. I mean, my critical heroes are not necessarily book reviews. I mean, one of my critical heroes is Joan Acacello, who's a dance critic for The New Yorker, also writes about books, but primarily they're dance critic, who I just think is beautiful writer. Her language is beautiful and brilliant and sharp, and she writes those reviews as a writer. Um, you know, my early critical hero was Lester Bangs, um, just for the... <laughs> sheer go for itness yeah um and kind of willingness to contradict himself in print and change his mind and and argue with himself which i think is really also essential in a lot of ways for um for critics as far as writers go i mean there were there were certainly the beats my primary influence i think probably is joan didion um who's like a quintessential california writer. quintessential california writer uh, does something of what we're talking about i mean is not really a critic i mean she has certainly written criticism but is definitely kind of um, balances journalism and literature or journalism, I think journalism is a form of literature but journalism and sort of more rarefied forms of literature, fiction and non-fiction moving back and forth and somehow at least to me has managed to kind of um, integrate her vision into all of those those things. I also really admire um, the writer Lynn Sharon Schwartz who has done everything, right? Who's written uh, essays, novels, short stories, poetry, criticism and in in an essay she once wrote that was published as an introduction to one of her anthologies said something along the lines of you know nobody would suggest that Beethoven should only have written sonatas or symphonies he was a composer so he composed that's what writers do we write in all forms and I really really believe that and take that to heart and what about uh, Carrie McWilliams Carrie McWilliams is a huge influence on me as a California thinker I didn't discover him until I got to California I mean we've talked about the California influences there's a whole uh, there's Carrie McWilliams there's Louis Adamich there's certainly Mike Davis there's Norman Klein this is really Southern California thinkers this sort of what I would call a kind of contrarian line of 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 social theorists and thinkers about California um, who are sort of trying to address and Southern California in particular who are trying to address the place on it on real terms rather than on terms of in terms of the illusions or the stereotypes well no it's fine like I, I mentioned McWilliams just because he's always fascinated me because he kind of had this dual career and he had to, he played an instrumental role in Hunter Thompson's career yes he broke him he, open well he published the Hell's Angels piece yeah yeah so I mean you know and then so he started here and then went on to the was it the nation he went to the nation in the 50s and stayed uh, into the late 60s I think I mean the Thompson piece came out in what 64 I think it was published 64 so the book came out in 64 Five or six. I think the piece came out in '64. Yeah. I think that was sort of towards the end of McWilliams' career. But yeah, he was hugely um, influential. Nathaniel West, another writer who I, you know, deeply, profoundly admire, and in terms of both his sense of the grotesque and also his sense of sort of the interplay of um, loneliness and mass culture and demagoguery in a certain way, which is a, uh, I think, you know, just turn on the TV, you can see how that plays out now. So he, he, di- he died like a day after F. Scott Fitzgerald. Day after F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah, boy, that be a bit of trivia. Is they were there. friends, apparently, I and I think that one of the stories is that that he was rushing to come up for the funeral, but I think that's a false story because the funeral, I believe, was on the East Coast, and West was apparently an atrocious driver. His friends wouldn't even get in the car with him. Everyone it's thought like my that, wife. Right. <laughs> everyone thought he would ultimately die behind the wheel, which is exactly what happened. So, um, your favorite neighborhoods in Los Angeles? 
favorite Espe- especially like to walk i mean you know you talk about engaging with the city at street level in kind of an analog way are there are there spots in the city you're willing to share yeah i mean um i love downtown um and i can talk i'll talk a little you know i love downtown i particularly like um i like many areas of downtown i really like little tokyo um i really like i like the arts district a lot but i really like um i like spring street i like um the Broadway corridor with the theaters. I mean, just sort of visually, I like it. And downtown's coming back, you think? Downtown's coming back. I mean, it's... And they've been saying that for like 10 years. It's block to block, but I think it actually is coming back. The question is, what's it coming back? Is it going to come back as a kind of, you know, integrated, authentic, urban core, or is it going to come back as a high-end shopping mall? And I think the the jury's still out on on that. But what is it about Little Tokyo specifically? I like the scale of it. I like the history of it. Um, I like the restaurants. Uh, I like the weird hidden things. There's a rooftop garden um, on the third... Outdoor rooftop garden on the third floor of what used to be the new Atani Hotel. I can never remember the new name of it. This is the problem with living in a place for a long time is you like fixate on what the original name was. Right. Um, like on First and San Pedro and uh, or Second and San Pedro. And, you know, it's sort of there. You, you know, it's open to the public. You have to kind of know about it. But I kind of love those little hidden um, areas. I love Viviana's. I love the sort of one of the things I really like about Los Angeles is that landmarks kind of are unremarked upon. So you just be kind of walking down Second street and you you know there's like pit fire pizza and the police headquarters building and then you know there's Viviana's, which was the original cathedral it was built in the 1870s now a high-end party space that's another metaphor i guess but it's <laughs> um but there it is you know and so that sense of kind of la's history as existing just a little bit below the surface it's kind of right in front of us but we only can see it if we're looking for it that always really interests me um well in downtown too i mean it, like it did have its heyday it had a huge heyday, you know, you know up it, until the probably up until the twenties or the thirties. It was like the John Font, the downtown of John Fonte. Right, you kind of see Los Angeles as it used to be. Yes, yeah, uh, and, you know, and there's, uh, I don't know, reading his work, I'm always sort of uh, nostalgic for something I never experienced. Yeah, no, I have the same, <laughs> I have the same feeling. And then I also really love. Um, sort of mid-city miracle mile um which is a kind of conflation of a few different neighborhoods but basically let's say pico to wilshire fairfax to hauser we sound and like have you ever seen the skit on saturday night live in yeah, california yeah, exactly it, it really does <laughs> capture something <laughs> yeah although i will say when i lived in new york all i ever talked about were subway lines so yeah, yeah, you know yeah. i mean it was it's like you know, it's the same kind of it's just a different version of the same the same discussion you know but that neighborhood i because that neighborhood is it's residential but it's also commercial you can walk um i mean you can walk in a useful way right you can walk to a grocery store or a bar or a dry cleaner or the bank or you know uh, anything like that right so there's something kind of vibrant and organic about that neighborhood and it's um and it's street life well that's and, one of the things i've noticed about myself i, I guess this has changed since i've had children uh, but Living someplace where you can walk to things like that, just the ordinary things, coffee, uh, possibly a grocery store, some sort of market, maybe a couple of good restaurants, having walkability so you don't have to get in your car and deal with traffic is huge. Absolutely. Absolutely. To me, it's a huge quality of life issue. Right. right. If I can do that, if I can walk to the bank or walk to Starbucks or walk to whatever, right, um, go get a sandwich, which you can do all of all of which you can do at pretty much anywhere you live in New York. Yeah, well, I mean it's it's sort of stuff you would take for granted somewhere else. But if I can do that here, I mean, in a lot of ways, I feel like we are always it's. 
our relationship to cities is a real relationship. So the city can't help but change us in some way because we have to adapt to it the same way we adapt to anybody or anything we're in a relationship with it with but we also adapt the city to our own ends so i you know i I have no doubt that on some cellular level i have sought out neighborhoods to live in in the time that i've lived here that have those kind of structures right where i can walk to to do things i don't have to get in a car if i'm i work a lot out of the house so often particularly in the summer um i I can go days at a time without getting into a car um so there's something about that 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 i want i want to have that relationship with where i I live so i found a way to kind of or found a neighborhood to live in where i can have that and so that's part of our the dynamic i think what about the west side you know, the West Side, I don't know that well. I like Santa Monica. I've never lived on the West Side. Um, I like Santa Monica. I think that's, you know, I like Venice. I like that sort of the coastal areas of the West Side. Um, mostly, though, I, it, I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, but mostly, though, I, I interact with it as a landscape I travel through. Right. Yeah, it's funny. You live, I mean, I live uh, on a good day, what, 20, 30 minutes away from the coast. Mm-hmm. And then how often do you actually see the ocean when you live here? Right, right. <laughs> so a friend of mine once told me that when the revolution came, this is uh, when, about five or six years after I moved here, that when the revolution came, I would be the first one they came for since I had not taken advantage. This was someone who lived in Pittsburgh, since I did not take advantage of living so close to the beach. Right. right. Well, and you know, the thing about it for me, though, in the summer, like, who wants, everyone's down there. It's too crowded. Yeah, and it's sand. I mean, I'm not a big fan of sand, I will say. Okay, yeah. so this is yeah. my, I grew up, in, I grew, my dad was like this, is, I mean, I I can enjoy the beach. As I get older, I'm maybe less enamored. But he, he was always like, it's just like a big ashtray. <laughs> what is it? Who wants to play in this? Well, it's like Hubert Selby Jr., the, the writer, I, last exit. He was, my, he was my instructor at uh, oh, graduate school. Okay. So he once said in an interview, he was, I guess, Henry Rollins took him on tour in the late 80s, uh, a European reading tour. And they were traveling. I can't remember from where to where, but they stopped at like a scenic overlook to look at the Alps. And Rollins said to him, you know, this is an amazing thing. And Selby said, eh, it's just a pile of rocks. <laughs> there's also, there's like a, I want to say there's a Bukowski story where, or a poem where like he's on a train with a kid and they're passing the ocean and the kid's like, it's not pretty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, because you, you are sort of like, you're sort of expected to find mountains in the ocean beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I, I mean, look, I, I actually do find them beautiful. Yeah. I like that Selby story a lot, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's like, what do we do? I mean, we're already running up against the drought. Yeah. Which I think is like this weird abstraction that's getting increasingly more concrete for people, especially when it comes time to pay the water bill or whatever. Right. But uh, is it sustainable? What's going to happen? I mean, because it really is an Eden. California is a, is an unbelievable piece it's, of real estate. It's hard to say. I mean, it is incredibly beautiful in all sorts of ways. You know, from you know the ocean, the mountains. I mean, some of those those rolling hills. If you drive through, you know, up by the grapevine or up in you know Northern California in, in Marin or even yeah. you know Mendocino, the redwoods. Um, the San Timoteo Badlands out near um, Banning, right? Is you know the, they're incredible. They're just yeah. you know I've never seen a land. It's like it's like you know extraterrestrial or something like that. So all of that is just kind of incredible. Um, you know, sustainable. I do. Do you worry? Like, do you worry? Like, what, what's Los Angeles? I got way more practical things to okay. worry about. <laughs> <laughs> Not I'm always thinking about like, oh my god, is this, is it going to melt? Are we going to run out of water? Is I it- don't worry. I mean, you know, to be honest, my fir- the first book I wrote, I, I edited a couple of books, and then the first book I wrote was a book about earthquakes and earthquake culture. And one of the reasons I I grew out of a 
a long article I, I wrote. One of the reasons I got involved in that was that after I moved here, I was anxious. Um, about earthquakes. Yeah, about earthquakes. And so I got interested first in predictors because I always am interested in sort of fringe ideas and fringe thinkers. But I ended up getting, from there, I ended up getting very interested in the science. And I realized in the middle of researching this project that I was either going to, you know, at the end of it, I was either going to be fine with staying or I was going to have to leave. Like, it was going to be one or the other. I was going to get so much information that I was either going to calm myself or just freak myself out. It turned out to be the former. Um, But I think it was really about just sort of, I mean, in a weird sort of way. And this was also kind of post-9. I mean, that book came out in 2004. I was writing it mostly in 2002, 2001, 2002. So sort of right around 9-11. And it really became a kind of, for me, a kind of way of reckoning with uncertainty on all levels, right? Because in the end, you could not live in California and come for a visit and the earthquake could happen or the right. catastrophic drought situation could go and you'll you know, be at Disney go red happens. alert or whatever right yeah. you know and you're still out of luck or you could um, live here and go on about your business and kind of there one of the guys I spoke to a Red Cross disaster specialist when I was researching that book said you know a little healthy denial is not a bad thing you know prepare Get your water. Do whatever you're going to do. Do you have? Do you have like an earthquake kit? I didn't for a long time because I had a superstition that if I actually had an earthquake kit, it would, <laughs> it would create the earthquake. But then I had kids, and my wife said to me, "You know, enough with that." I now should we get have one. To, I got to yeah. get one. So we have, uh, yeah, we have water and um, water and canned goods. I mean, nothing. It's not a couple like, about yeah. a couple big jugs or something. Like fifty gallons. Fifty gallons. Yeah, I got to get that. Yeah, you know. All right. Um, they if they go bad after a while. You replace them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I. I don't know. I I tend to be either fatalistic or weirdly optimistic in the sense that I do believe in our ingenuity um, as a species. I do believe that um, if there is a solution to be found, we'll find it. I don't know that there's a solution to be found. I'm far more concerned about bigger global issues, climate change, whether the client, whether the planet will actually be habitable for human beings on a, on a broader scale than just California. I think we may really have crossed the tipping point on that. It can Um, be scary when you start to read up on that stuff. Yeah. I actually kind of avoid reading up on that stuff (laughs) because there's not anything. I mean, I try to sort of be responsible, but there's nothing I can do about it. And all it does is prevent me from sleeping. And I, as I said, I have plenty of other things that prevent me from sleeping on a daily basis. So I don't need to add to that pile. Right. (laughs) Did you ever read uh, the Stephen Emmett book, 10 billion? No. Okay. Don't. Okay. (laughs) I won't. Thank you. (laughs) You won't sleep for weeks. You can read it in like 10 minutes and you just put it down and you're just shattered. Right. Yeah. I've I've had that experience with with other books. Well, you know, you got to pick and choose. And I feel like uh, there's only so much you can take in. There's only so much bad news a person can take in. You know, and you're trying to weigh that against being responsible as a parent and as a citizen. But at a certain point, it's like, my God. Well, I, you shut down, I yeah. think is what, at least I do. At a certain point, I shut down and I just can't hear anymore. And so, you know, there is that side of it. Um, and so I think, yeah, we have to all sort of, you know, we all do want to, I mean, I think it's important for everybody to be aware and responsible, but I also think like, if we only exist in that space, then we're all going to be running around screaming with our hair standing on, on end. Um, okay, so somebody's coming to Los Angeles for the first time. Mm-hmm. You've got a friend or a friend of a friend. They want to know like three things they they absolutely have to do in LA. <laughs> Can you think of three? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I would, I could tell you where I would take them. Some of these are, you know, I would take, the, well, I, you can't take them to Angel's Flight anymore because it's not operational. But I would take them to Angel's Flight if it were were Angel's Flight operational. Um, and I would extend and that's that. downtown. That's downtown. Um, world's shortest railway. The, for, it's a, a funicular that runs up Bunker Hill that was built in 1901, uh, closed in 1969, and then reopened in, I think, 96, about a half a block south. And then due to a couple of accidents, it's been open and shut, but it has not been operational for the last couple of years. So I would take them there. I would take them there anyway because the trains are still on the track, and it's kind of cool. And across the street is uh, Grand Central Market, which I love, um, and which has some of the greatest old neon in the city. So that's one place I would take them. Um, in a weird way, although I hadn't been there in years, I was just a friend of mine's kid was just bar mitzvahed there. So I was just up there for a party. I would take them to Yamash- Yamashiro's, which is right by the Magic Castle. It's a yeah, yeah, Japanese yeah. restaurant up on the, the hill over Franklin in Hollywood, which, you know, I mean, the food's fine. But it's just the, the, the view, that kind of sense of like 1930s, weird old Hollywood. Um, there is, you know, again, despite my sort of cynicism about that stuff in some way, there is a real... Um, there is something romantic about it. There is a real kind of oh, yeah. you know, edge to that. Something so I about I, an aerial view of Los Angeles. I love it. From the yeah, exactly. So I would do that. Uh, and as a third, hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, maybe at this point, um, Sunset in Echo Park, Sunset Boulevard in Echo Park, um, by you know stories yeah, yeah, and A two six, just to sort of because I think that's a really uh, I mean talk about an interest really kind of great and vibrant community in the city, especially creative community, really creative community and um, a lot of energy and you know just I think that's just as a kind of like as a neighborhood to take them to to say a lot of street life you know right um, so for a kind of sense of what the vibrancy of the we're talking about that the city as it develops the vibrancy of the developing city. I It'll be is, unaffordable is, very is, soon. Yeah, it probably already is. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> They're putting up lofts as we speak, and uh, the ban- you know bankers are moving in. Yeah. Uh, well, it has been such a pleasure uh, talking to you and, and uh, getting to talk about Los Angeles. And I just I thank you for the time and congratulate you on the book. Thanks so much. I was really uh, a great. It was great to be here. I really appreciate it. All right, guys. That's David L. Ulin. His latest book, Sidewalking is available now for pre-order from the University of California Press. It's due out in October of this year, and uh, you can find him online at the LA Times. Go to latimes.com, look him up, Google him. Uh, he's also on Twitter. His handle over there is at David Ulin. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the music. Uh, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about that app, the free Other People app. Go get that. Sign up for premium. And uh, if you would like to email me, let me know what you think. Tell me a story. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. So, I, st- I still got to figure out what I'm going to read. Am I really going to read uh, this sex scene? I guess I am. My wife isn't going to be there. If she was there, I would feel really awkward. <laughs> I'm also not going to tell her that I'm reading this. Not that she would care that much, but it's just awkward. Gets into details. Guess that's what happens when you uh, write and agree to go read that writing aloud. Please remember that Thomas Edison had only three months of actual classroom time and that Frida Kahlo had one of her legs amputated. That's it for now. Uh, thanks, you guys, for listening. I appreciate it, as always. Thanks to David L. Ulin. Uh, keep an eye out for his book, Sidewalk, and go pre-order it. 
Uh, keep an eye out for his criticism at the LA Times. And uh, that's about it for now. I'll let you know if there's any baby news. I'll let you know if this knot in my upper middle back goes away anytime soon. I have no idea. And, you know, maybe it's a function of age. Like, I didn't even do anything to earn the knot. It just showed up. What is this song? Hang on. It's called Fake Pajamas. <laughs> Let's just listen to Fake Pajamas for a moment together. Let's have a communal experience listening to Fake Pajamas. Here we go. I want you to imagine me having sex to this song. Thank you. Maybe I should play this song tonight as I'm reading the sex scene involving me. You guys think that would be okay? Is that alright? <laughs> 